You need to get your microphone. Oh. <laughs> okay, go on. Well, you need to point it at your mouth. I know. Tighten right, it up. Gross. So interesting. You're moving the mic closer to me, and I'm, I'm just pointing only ever the just loudest person. I know, person. but it, 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 it can be loud and boxy at the same time. Oh. Yeah. Hello? Welcome to Beetlejuice. Hello? With Jeff Lloyd. What? Because everything's better with the Beatles. Yeah, it's just something a bit more, because it sounds a bit dead when you hear it, just as an intro. How about this, then? Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! This is Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Yeah, we'll have it, we'll have it! There's only one. Worth it for that. Basically, you were going to say that one of these, one of the nothing is real guys said to you. When we were talking, not yes, in the bit where we recorded, your, right, when you were we were talking about combo. that thing that you and I mentioned briefly last week about how Ringo had said that once they became famous, it was only the four of them who treated each other exactly the same because yeah. everybody else treated them like Beatles. Even, even like close family. Yeah. And something they said that I'd never thought of before that was exciting to me was that that thing of being treated differently because you're a Beatle doesn't happen from your children. And Paul fell in love with the, the the love of a child because it was different to the love that the world was giving him. And that John caught on to that as well. I like that theory. I'm thinking about it. I don't know. I, I How can you... I'd have to meet these sons and the daughters, and I don't know them. I personally feel to assess their actual parenting we're not talking this one was never around for the child and this one saw the child at breakfast every day which i do think is a big deal but if you want to get deeper into that it than that i would need to be around each child of each beetle for a week and then i could deliver an assessment of what i think you met sean as detailed oh, last yes, week yes i did you saw james once i did and you felt that he gave you the eye. <laughs> Basically, you were interviewing him on your radio show. Yeah. And I was coming to meet you after work. And a woman knows. <laughs> and I felt, this was in my younger days. So I'm 41 now. I must have been, I bet I was like 33. And I really, I've really fallen off a cliff. Look, well, look, you can't, you can't agree to this. But it's what, just what not is, true. What is the same. just true is that I have physically fallen off a cliff in the last, like, I would say, like, three or four years since, not, you know, since parenting. True. Anyway, at 33, I still had it. And he was as much as I've ever had it, you know, I mean, <laughs> within reason. And he was just looking at me in this particular way. And I don't think it was clear to him that I was your wife. I was just, like, suddenly a young woman who was in this radio station. And I thought, can I, I'm trying to swear less, but Go I on. wanted to use the F word just Go then. On. I was like, I could fuck a Beatles kid. <laughs> it was just a thing in my body. I went, if I wanted to make a real play for this, and I, w I wouldn't, even if I'd been single, I don't think I would have. But, but no, I probably would have just for the story of it. I get the impression when you were single, the, the standards weren't that high. Yeah, my brother and I have both spoken about the fact that in our single days, we were very quantity over quality. Well, I'm sorry that that, that opportunity was I never realised. I don't consider it a sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if I was right. I bet I was right about that. I might have been wrong, but I bet I was right. Mm. Okay. Shall I ask you some questions? Yes. Okay. So you talk often... <laughs> about the like 
in your show this week, you you mentioned that Rubber Soul came out two was it two and a half years after their debut album. Yes, and so you used that as like a detail to illustrate the warp speed at which they were working mm. and um, evolving as artists. And do you feel that there was ever a point where the warp speed was actually a negative, where something was lesser because of how quickly things moved? No, what's fascinating is they probably felt like that. Right. So take Rubber Soul, for example. I haven't got the um, exact dates in my head. But the Beatles knew that they had to put 12 or 14 songs on an album. And very close to the point where Rubber Soul needed to be handed in, it wasn't ready. And they were recording bits of instrumental music to fill it out, just in case they didn't have enough songs. Right. And then, of course, they did have enough songs and it became Rubber Soul. So... I know they really loved working on that album and and George, I think it was his favourite album, not just because of how it sounds, but probably because the memories around it were less difficult than working on some of the later albums. He probably felt that everybody got to work to the best of their ability without anybody else telling them what to do. Right. So they all think really well of that album. So they should, as I say on the radio show. It's kind of, in a way, it's them at the peak of their powers just because of the tightness. So I think even if it did work against them in terms of how it felt to them at the time, it it was just a positive in terms of what what came out in the record shops. When you're talking about the Beatles, the Beatles, you know what I keep trying to do is like I can't figure out a better way into every question than like when you talk about this thing in the radio show. <laughs> it's and fine. Then you, you talk overthink about this, this stuff. You overthink it. The other day you were talking to me about your social media, and I think I don't want to use the phrase "this just happened" or "I just this." And I think it doesn't matter if the no. tweet's good. No one's looking well, through. Good, no one's looking through your social media no, to so see if you've overused do, the word "just." Anyway, although I, I seem to remember reading. <gasps> oh, 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 is this going to embarrass? No, no, you're not, talking not, the not way that all. you talk when you say something that embarrasses no, me. No, 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 no. I'm just trying to think of a way of linking it back into the Beatles. I think in the Hunter Davis book, which was the official Beatles biography commissioned by Brian Epstein that came out in '68, John Lennon talks about his dislike of the word "just." And if it's in a lyric, you'll always try and get it out of there mm-hmm. because it's a nothing word. Yeah, I agree. Well, he and I, great minds, etc. So you're talking about the, who, how all of the Beatles were really bad drivers. Well, yes. You don't if, want, if, if you you don't count, want no, any of them to drive your car. Yes. I think Paul got it out of his system very young, or at least that we know of. What I didn't discuss was how many times has a Beatle been pulled over by a policeman or a police officer They've wound down the window and straight away it's a beetle so they don't get a speeding ticket. So I think that's just the tip of the iceberg, what I talked about on the radio. But it seems that all of them except Paul, who was a speed demon when he passed his test, were, were pretty bad drivers. Why do you think that was? It Was it like a lack of ability to feel that the rules applied to them? It's very common for a young boy to be a boy racer. That's where the phrase comes from. Okay. So never heard that phrase, but go on. But if you think of the kids in your high school, when boy fl- racer is a phrase, yeah, huh, never heard that. It's it's these teenagers who pass their test and then drive really recklessly, right? Oh, okay. So I think Paul grew out of that. I think it's unfair to say Ringo was a bad driver. I think he was in a car crash at a time of his life when his life was 
quite a mess in the early 80s. I'm not going to speculate as to how sober or otherwise he might have been. I'm sure he wouldn't be irresponsible enough to drive of course. with alcoholic system. But otherwise, he and when he was, a, again, when he was a young boy, he tells this story about him and George racing back from Warrington to Liverpool and him crashing and pretty much writing a car off. But John John was a bad driver because he couldn't see very well. And I think he... Then he sort of, you'd fix that well, with that's, the glasses. Well, he, yeah, I think John liked, just liked to be driven. Most of the time he was driven by a chauffeur. Oh. He had some nice cars, but most of the time he, he liked to be driven ferried around. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't like that because I like to be in the front. Joe, I wouldn't like it. Why? The... Small talk, small talk, the small talk. Like the small yeah, talk. I don't understand why rich people have chauffeurs. I understand why you would book a car service to come and pick you up every day, but I wouldn't want to see the same person with any regularity because I wouldn't want any kind of relationship to form with that person. But maybe they really get to know your needs and they understand that you both exchange a pleasantry like you would with someone who works at the shop across the road. Good morning. How are you? Good. Yeah, good. Okay. And then it's just silence for 45 minutes. But it, it can't be though, can it? If you've seen somebody every day. No, I think it absolutely could be. Because the, the, the way that it would be minimal, like if you go to the shop across the road. Mm. But if I'm in the shop across the road, I'm in there for five minutes maximum. But, if you're Paul McCartney being driven from Sussex to London, you're in the car for two, three hours or something. But you would well, you would select the driver who understood that you say, hello, how are you? Everything good? Yes. And then the convo is over. And that's how you know it was the right person for you. Well, Paul is the interesting one because he has had the same driver for decades. Very Paul. He's called John Hamill, and he's a close friend of Paul's as well, and, and he's his guitar technician. It's his job to look after the Hofner bass. Jack of all trades. Yeah. Do you? So neither one of us really drives. Yeah. You've never learned. You can drive. I can drive, but I'm, I don't feel comfortable driving on the left side of the road. I think that we're in this sort of, what's, what's the, the game where, like, we both desperately want the other person to bite the bullet and get take a driving test and then like so you're saying get a zip car subscription. So you're saying there's some kind of cold war between us. Yeah, a game of chicken is that what you yes, people call it? Yes, like, there's some kind of standoff. Do you want me to use the next two lo- months of lockdown to take a driving? If you want to, I don't, I don't. You do what, but whereas I would have to completely learn a new skill, and there's a lot of things about me that say I wouldn't be very good at that thing. Well, I don't think I'm good at it either. But, but you anyway. are. When we're on holiday, you drive. Do you find it attractive when I drive? I love nothing more than when we're on holiday, you driving and me um, making a playlist for the car and we drive. But it doesn't feel attractive. I really love being driven around by you on holiday. It's just being in that little bubble, listening to music and looking at beautiful views and having having a chat is my perfect day. But I don't find it sexy. I just think, oh, well, aren't we just having the loveliest time? <gasps> but but just the idea of sexy cars, and I think all no, the... it's not the car. So you're you're saying that if you found some, you wouldn't see any difference between somebody driving a Volvo and somebody driving an no. Aston Martin. No, in fact, I'd f- I think I'd find the Volvo sexier because the Aston just Martin the, would be like, oh yeah, yeah, they're prioritizing safety. Yeah, or it's just it's a little. It would feel less. I don't know. But just on that being driven around thing, yeah, that was a real connection between Paul and Linda. Right. They liked that's two of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. As his life was falling apart or as the Beatles were falling apart and it was taking its toll on him, one of the ways in which she taught him to just 
enjoy himself and find himself was is they'd go out driving in the countryside and <laughs> they'd get lost you know they wouldn't take a map they'd just follow their noses why are you, why are you looking at me because with that disdain it wasn't disdain it was how many times i've heard you say that that's what was funny but i'm saying it on a podcast i've not said it on the podcast no before. i know but it's just that's like a really nice but isn't it lovely yes isn't it is. that something we can all relate to it is lovely i think what's also making me laugh is the that you know that story because paul's put that story out there <laughs> and so the idea of what the reality like that's just not what life is most of the time for you know it would probably be like they probably tried it and then it would be bad or they'd have an argument or something bad you know and so it was you buying into the 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 version that paul mccartney puts out there it was making me laugh as well i think he buys into that version too well yes i think so um the so they trashed all these cars and then you there was that picture of the letter from the guy You'll have to help me say this in a coherent way. Are you talking about the Residents Association? Yes. I think we should come at this. I think that we should come at this in a, a slightly different way. Well, but this is why I wanted to tie it together. Yeah. Is so I believe that if you're capable of trashing a hotel, mm. there is something bad inside of you. Oh, I see what you mean. So I know a few people who have trashed hotel rooms, and I think it shows. I'm not saying that they are then just a bad person, but I think. If you trash a hotel, you are very at peace with the idea of someone else cleaning up after you. Okay, let me just provide context here for people who weren't following the show on Twitter as it was going out. When I talked about them playing the Hollywood Bowl concerts, I said that no hotel would have them. I think that's up for debate. But basically, their fans were so disruptive at that point it was a problem. So instead of staying in a hotel, they rent a house in Bel Air from this actor, Reginald Owen. Right. And then I tweeted a photograph of a letter that he received after that from the Residents Association talking about the destruction of property. And that's why you bring it up. Right. What's unclear as to whether it was the Beatles or the fans that caused that. So I imagine it was more to do with the fans hanging around and trying to climb up walls and ruining bushes and things in the Beatles themselves. Great. Okay, that makes me feel better. I mean, I'm sure they must have trashed some hotel rooms. And I don't think the Beatles were great. I don't think they were throwing TVs out of windows. What do you think of this? I heard a great, to do with hotel rooms, I heard a great story. I kind of heard it secondhand. I've tried to look into it and got nowhere, but I think it's really exciting because if it's true, it's an untold Beatles story. Somebody, one step away from a first-hand account, told me that in the early days of Beatlemania, when they'd be staying at these sort of rinky-dink hotels up and down the UK, so they're successful, but there aren't luxury hotels at that point. Right. Just little bed and breakfasts and local hotels. But they would, in effect, be prisoners in their hotel room because the fan's outside. Right. That they would take pictures down off the walls. So think of a... A watercolour of a, a horse sure. or a pastoral view right? or a naval battle. John would take them out of the frames, get the pictures, draw on the back of them because you know, he's this artist uh, and do his own pictures and sign them and then put them back in the frames but to look just like they did in the first place. In other words, people are staying in hotels unaware of the fact that their original <gasps> Beatle or John Lennon Oh pictures That's behind the pictures nice. they're looking at yeah that sounds like i believe that story i know but the the wild thing about that is there might still be some in existence that people don't know about because they just think that these terrible chintzy hotel have you ever pictures. stayed at a hotel like that and checked the pictures too much no, effort for you because for, for it still be up on the wall would mean and 
in your job as a comedian, I'm sure you've seen some hotels that feel like this, but it mean that this hotel hadn't been refurbished since 1963, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is very unlikely. Yeah. Or the picture had gone up on the wall. So most likely is, is they're in skips. It's been refurbished, but then you you move, you, you still keep the artwork up? Maybe, or maybe when places get modernised or closed down, a, a house clearance company buys all the stuff and it goes to a market. I don't know why I'm like trying to encourage you to start looking at... <laughs> It'd be amazing. Back of pinnings, but how amazing would that be for someone? Yeah, I know. I just, I'd I'd be surprised if they still exist. I'm sure that they don't. Let's talk about Paris. I have three things I'd like to say. Yes. So you were talking about how Paris figures in significantly because that was sort of where it was first suggested that they comb their hair forward. Yes. You've tried to do that a few times. Mm. I don't think it works for you. No. That's the first thing I want to say. It's one of the great sadnesses of my life. Yeah, I've never been you... able to have beetle hair because my hair is too curly. I'm married to you and I think that you should forever forgo doing that to your hair. I've complied. You have complied. I've complied with your instructions on my hair. <laughs> when Jeff first met me, he thought I was a decade older than I was because of how terrible my hair was sitting atop my head. Can I just say that came up at, that came out in conversation a long time afterwards, whereas you, I think, pretty quickly started giving me notes on how to wear my hair. Yeah, that's possible. But I felt like it was an okay note because it was supportive of your looks, because it was like, oh, you have this real thing in your head about how ugly you are. So there's choices that I think you're making with your clothing and your hair that come from a place of thinking you're disgusting. And I think you have a you're a good looking dude. So you should show us the face. <laughs> when we went to Paris, we went to Paris at this point, I don't know how many years ago it was, but it was many years ago. And you were trying on, um, again, different times, more money in our lives. Because there was a before and after, and our lives looked one way before and another way afterwards. It's not like we live in poverty now, but there was a time when we would go to Paris and you'd go into a nice shop and think about getting yourself a sport coat that was expensive. And that's not how life is anymore. So anyway, it was back in those days. And you went into this shop and there was a a Parisian homme in the shop. And uh, you tried on this, this. This can't be racist. No, I think it, I think it's to do with balance of power. It, yeah, I feel fine. Yeah, yeah. I feel comfortable in this choice, but now I'm out of it, so I mm. don't think I'll go back. But anyway, this sort of tall Parisian. It's not great when you tell that story about when we were in India. <laughs> I would never do that, just I to be know. clear. So I wouldn't do that. But anyway, so you tried on this jacket and you felt kind of good in it. And I think you were thinking about treating yourself to a nice jacket. And then the shopkeeper was like, that is not for you. This is jacket for men who is tube. You are not tube. Like I'm meaning he was tube. saying you were, your tummy was too big. I'm not a tube shaped man. He was saying man. you were in a tube shaped man. Yeah. But this stuff, this stuff gets into your brain. I mean, it was in my brain already, but. I know that was, I hated when that happened to you. Just, it was a little bit funny, but it was mostly. Just to bring it back to John Lennon, look at what being called the fat beetle did to I, and him. And he was never fat, which neither were you. But well, you were, you were, you were very round. Yeah. First of all. Part of what my education recently has been about is that fat is not a bad word. Me too. I, th- I think so. That we I... are using the word fat like we would say the word blonde. Yes. Are certainly trying to. Yes. Here's what I struggle with. I would like the same kind of attitude to body positivity that a lot of people, especially a lot of younger people have. Yeah. However, for me, and I'm not yeah. talking about anybody, what I think about when I see anybody else's body, when I see my body, yes, it makes me unhappy yes i still do it to myself which i'm not happy about and i think i do it to you as well but that's because i feel like our bodies are one (laughs) largely because i i i 
Like, I worry about your health and figure as though they were both mine, which isn't healthy. Would you be up for recreating that John and Yoko, Annie Leibovitz? Were they naked in bed? Yeah, and he's kind of in the fetal position. There's a touch of Madonna and child to it. Oh, yeah, I would do that. (laughs) You know, I did a naked photo shoot once with Pete. Oh, I think I did know. It was awful. We were sort of bullied into it by the radio station. Oh, God. And I did it. I was. How old were you? 30, 31, something like that. And it was for charity and it was a recreation. Do you remember that film, Calendar Girls? Yeah. So it was a recreation of one of the photos. Starring Jason Priestley. No, wasn't it Helen Mirren? It's 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 a British film about some women's women's institute older ladies who do a naked charity calendar. Okay, keep going. So one of the national newspapers wanted to do a recreation of this with celebrities, and I'm only guessing that they couldn't get any, so they asked me and Pete to do it. So I'm really uncomfortable with the PR department at the radio station. And the boss are so keen for us to do it for ratings, which I think it's, this isn't going to have any effect on the ratings. This right, is just, but people feel like they have a job. Exactly, exactly that thing. And I'm, I'm pressured into doing it. I say, I'll only do it if, if you don't see any of the front of my body. And it's not my genitals that I'm particularly worried about. It's, it's my belly and chest. Oh, honey bun. Why are you, why, why? So, so I know, I, I don't, I don't, I was just going to say to you, <gasps> You just said, I'm embarrassed by my belly and chest. And I was going to say, but why are you embarrassed by your chest? The implication being that you should be embarrassed by your belly, which I don't think you should be. But I know why you, I know that's a real thing for you. Well, I'll tell you why. But why pro- are you embarrassed by your chest? Because you're a big you, pet. Te- well, I'll tell you, no, I'll tell you why. And it proved to be true. So I, so they said, yeah, we'll only take your photo from behind. We promise you won't show any front. So they take this photo. I'm so unhappy doing it. It's me and Pete arranging some flowers like on a, a little table. With, and you're really with pissed our, off and angry. Yeah, I'm upset. I'm upset. upset. You're upset. Yeah. So so this comes out in the Sunday paper. I get a copy. I dread opening it. And then I open it and I see exactly what I don't want to see. You're cupping your titty? Well, you can see my titty. And it looks like, <laughs> it looks like you know, like a, a you little... You don't have It tits. looks like a little French tit. It does. <laughs> it looks like a a petite, a petit oui, boob. Oui, oui. Yeah. I've seen a lot of naked men in my time, <laughs> and I think you look beautiful. What do you think of John Lennon's naked body on the front? Of, oh, uh, I, I genuinely, to answer that question, and with the knowledge that my parents are listen to this, felt a tinge of... Um, excitement. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's just the most... First of all, he looks like he has a semi-hard-on. Do you think he touched himself? I think anyone who's having a, a full yeah, frontal... Yeah, that's... What do you think of her body? Let's have a look. She looks beautiful. Yeah, she looks great. I th- I think he looks We're so amazing. We're talking about Yoko, amazing. by the way. This was the cover of the Two Virgins album. Oh, my God. Album. There's a certain kind of, like, exact right level of hairlessness that some grown men have. So they, they're not so hairless that you're like, you're a grown man, like, grow some hair. But there is, I mean, I, I just think it's one of the greatest naked bodies I've ever seen in my entire life. And that's despite the necklace he's wearing, which is obviously not to my taste. You know that this really upset the other Beatles when he put out an album with that cover. Why? Because they then have to deal with people asking questions about John's naked body and what they think of it. <laughs> but you know what Ringo said? What? So he looks at it. The butt one or the the, the full frontal one? Uh-huh. He looks at it and then says, uh, ooh, is that the Times? <laughs> <laughs> it's the newspaper on the floor next to them. 
<laughs> doesn't say anything about them being naked. Was he the funniest, do you think? No, I think John was the funniest. Oh, look at how he's got a full erection in this other one. I mean, he's he's given himself an erection. Oh, yeah. That's an erection. Yeah, it's not not. I've seen a lot of <laughs> erections in my time, and that's an erection. All right. Um, okay. What um what was Dr. Roberts about? Doctor Who? Roberts, are you joking? Dr. Roberts, I don't get it. It's just interesting that you've pluralized Robert. Oh, classic me. <laughs> Will you edit that out or you leave it in no, make it look like it a dummy? I'll tell you something. Dr. I've heard Robert. You, I've heard you sing that a few times as Dr. Roberts over oh. the past day. And I thought, oh, she thinks it's Dr. Roberts. And oh, I'm you're gonna, gonna tell oh her, my so god, you're gonna let me embarrass myself. That's nasty. Yeah. You're nasty oh, boy. You're a nasty boy. Is it just about a doctor? I mean, on one level, it's it's you know just a, a story like um, any of Mr. them are any of them are stories. But on another hand, there's some thought that you know they had this dentist, John and George, who was kind of the swing. Didn't do a very good job. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought I'd take a low swing. Uh, Is be- that a thing? A low swing? Can you take a low? I, th- swing? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. George, I think British George's teeth. teeth got a lot. But I think George had his teeth. Fixed. I like. I think there's a certain kind of natural tooth that can be kind of hot in its naturalness, and then there's a badness of tooth where you're like, no, that's you're a monster. Which category does the late Queen Mother fall into? Oh, I can't picture her teeth. I bet they're terrible. Just right? Google image Queen Mother's teeth. Queen Mother teeth. Oh. Queen Mother. I can type eighty three words a minute. <laughs> <gasps> Why? Why? But but I mean that really. Why wouldn't she? I don't know. I'm I'm not. I'm not an expert. She was phobic. Maybe you're phobic. You're a little phobic. Yeah, but I I tried to look after my teeth. I'm just scared of the dentist. Well, but then we talked about you spending some money on you. You have someone who comes to your house and they give you this drug. Yes, but what's the other thing I'm scared of? Needles, but maybe... And, no, the drug is administered by needles. So there is... The, and you know for a fact there's not another way to... I'm sure there's not. I'll, I'll like look into it. Yeah, I'll look into <gasps> it. Oy, 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 skis, these teeth. <laughs> they don't okay. show that in the crown, do they? No, I'm surprised. That seems like the kind of thing they pay attention to in the crown. The reason I mentioned a dentist is the Beatles had this dentist... Oh, Dr. Who was a Robert. swinging London dentist who's called John. But he was the dentist who George and John went to a dinner party at his house Mm -hmm. and he slipped acid (gasps) into their drinks and that was their first acid trip oh that's terrible yeah and there's this whole story about that it's it's a really um it's obviously something you know it's a well-told anecdote in Beatles circles um so there's some thinking that Dr. Robert might have had something to do with him I've also heard I think maybe straight from John Lennon's mouth although he's not the most reliable narrator in a certain way that he would carry the drugs when the Beatles toured. Dr. Robert was... No, John, John would. Oh, okay. And that he was Dr. Robert. That in talking about somebody who had all the pills and substances that would make you feel good, he's talking about himself carrying the drugs when they toured. Okay, that sounds right. I'm going with that one. Um, I agree with what Ringo said about people who run charities. What? I think I think that they're bad people. So... In the Hunter Davis biography, Ringo is asked about money and he talks about not carrying cash. He talks about not even knowing what a pound note looks like. Mm -hmm. When asked about donating money to charity, 
he says, mm, I think Brian does some of that, but I don't. I, I don't like charities. The people who run them aren't good people. So do you think that was just him trying to justify his own cheapness? I will say in that quote from Ringo, he also mentions the ABBA fan disaster, which crops up in an oh, episode of The Crown. Yes. So there must have been something about the money that was donated. I don't know the news story from the time, but there must have been something about the Oy, way... It, there must have been something about the money that was donated to those families not reaching those families, and he was responding to that, but I don't know the story. I liked how, I wrong. just liked how committed to it he was. There was also enough... Couldn't really find a way to shoehorn it in, but there was a thing from the National Enquirer from the 80s. So instantly, I think it might not be true, about Ringo running up a $700 restaurant bill... Right. And not leaving a tip. And then with a quote from him saying, I don't believe in tipping. (gasps) Now you've worked in restaurants. I have. And I hate, I hate, I mean, it's been a long time. And when I waited tables, I used to hate when other people who used to wait tables talked about when people didn't tip them. And you're like, that's part of your past. It doesn't even affect your income anymore. So it doesn't affect my income. But anyone, people understand, at at least at this point, that the minimum wage for a waiter in New York City was like nothing. Like you were making like $4 an hour. It wasn't that bad, but like $6 an hour. And people from like, definitely a British person would know that. They would understand that they were expected to tip. I think what British people don't understand is that even now, they don't understand that 20% is normal. Well, it seems... When I I always I've always uh, tried to Sony, pride myself on yes. being a generous tipper because I want the person serving me to like me. Yes, and I had no idea that twenty percent was normal. Here, I think a lot of people still tip ten. If it's added onto your bill, it's twelve and a half. But you're and not I think if you, here anymore. You're not in this country. You're now in a different country. No, but I don't think it's known to a British traveller that twenty percent is the normal. So I think if you tip you know it's a bit more. So if you tip fifteen percent, you think, oh I'm being really generous. And then when I found out it was twenty, I was humiliated and I, I always tip more than twenty. But what about the expectation on a celebrity to leave a large tip, having waited yeah, they on mostly Hollywood really film good, stars. Yeah, they would leave big tips. And if a celebrity does that, do you then think they're a really generous tipper or do you think, okay, they've behaved how a celebrity should behave? Both. I think both things. I would, be, If I was one of those famous people, I would be constantly obsessing about whether people working in restaurants thought yeah, I was generous thought you were nice. and trying to second guess how much other people were leaving and always want to be at the the top of the league table like you'd want to be well howard stern famously in waiter circles is like one of the nicest people to ever get to deal with Mm. and renee zellweger is that right Mm -hmm. do you think it says neediness yeah probably a little bit and do you think it says that the beatles ultimately none of them were needy people yes i think there's some way in which they weren't that none of them are famed for a certain type of Yes. Over the top generosity. Although I, 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 I mean, Paul seems very needy to me, but I don't yeah, know. but I also think, um, I also think he's careful with his money. Of course, this is a little bit classic uh, comparison between Paul McCartney and myself. Mm. Is that I'm quite obsessed with se- being seen as a good tipper, but I'm also incredibly cheap, and if tested, my cheapness outrides my my need to be liked. Where do you think it comes from with you? My mom. But specifically, what what message have you had that says it's good to be cheap? Just my entire childhood. No, but what your mom isn't saying directly it's good to be cheap. What is the underlying value to do with cheapness? 
that you're bad if you overspend. You're like a bad person if you overspend. Which I don't, I don't quite, I don't think it's that cut and dry anymore. That is what my adult life with you has taught me. But I think that's what I. So I'm just wondering. And I think there is truth in that. So I'm wondering if Paul's dad perhaps had similar values. He was very kind of prudent. Anyway, somewhat recently, we had a babysitter come over here for our son. And I just, this was between the lockdowns. And for a little context, I need to explain that there's a Franco Manca pizzeria near us. Bragging. <laughs> and um, they do a kid's special for five pounds. Okay. So you can get pizza and juice and ice cream for your kid for five pounds. So we had our babysitter coming over. And I put like a tenner down for her. And I said, oh, if you want to take you and Jean for some pizza, here you go. And you saw that I'd given her 10 pounds to take herself and Jean out to dinner. And you were like, you can't, you can't give someone a tenner and act like you're, hey, big spend up. I mean, like, get yourself something nice as well. Because <laughs> it was that. It, it was, was like you were so doing her a favor. Embarrassing. I felt humiliated, but I was just like, I don't, I don't want to put down a 20. <laughs> And I just, it's something I'm always working on. And then it flares up once in a while. And it really did on that occasion. I can't remember who, but somebody, one of the Beatles entourage who wrote a book, it might have been Tony Bramwell, but I can't remember, wrote about how getting Paul to understand what a reasonable wage is was difficult because he would benchmark everything against how much his dad earned as a cotton salesman in 1953. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. I understand that. Here's what I think of the Beatles smells. This is because I asked Sarah from Meet the Beatles for real. Yes. So obviously, and unoriginally, my number one Beatle is John. But I believe he would have had some body odor problems. Tell me why I think Ringo would wear a bad cologne. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's dumb. I think I think it's like I associate. I, I think I can't let go of the Monaco chapter for him. Mm. And I think Monaco, which I know is so beautiful and amazing, but it's also there is like a cheese. Mm. And I think I'm the man who lives in Monaco for some like is maybe spraying himself with some stinky cologne. That wouldn't be for me. I, th I think you're right. I th I th oh, you do? Well, I don't know if it'd be, a, I think it would be an expensive cologne. But I Oh, think you I would. didn't say not. A, yeah. yeah, I'm sure it would be very expensive. And then... I don't know. Would you be put off by any uh, um, incense-y smell around George? Yes. Jostics? Yes, I would. Yeah, Just, that occurred to me, but I didn't want to... I don't feel fully comfortable these days discussing how I dislike the smell of incense. Because you think there's a cultural element to it? Yeah. When, do you remember when I went to see that Mark Lewison rehearsal of the the tour yes. that he did about Abbey Road? He managed to track down the exact scent of incense that George had the Beatles burn in the studio. So his show smelled like a Beatles session smelled. <laughs> it's not for me. <laughs> and, and I'm trying to remember if there was a smell that went with it. But one or two of the times that I've interviewed Paul has been backstage at his concerts. And there is a room that he has, almost like a little antechamber yeah where all drapes are hung up and it's kind of a bit moroccany fabrics yeah scattered around and candles and i'm trying to f bring to mind if those candles is were it scented. arabian nights 
Or is it incense? Is Maybe it it's more. Of, may, no, it's or more, is it Arabian Nights? I think it's. More I would. Lo- I like Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. I don't like anything patchouli. I tried to get at one time, and I didn't really get anywhere. Because often, when you're doing these interviews backstage, you've got such a short amount of time. So that's become a thing with him at his concerts that he has this little den decked out like that. And I, I tried to get into. I tried to get into how much of that comes from him. Oh, that's a good question. Versus how much of it does he make a comment in passing? <laughs> and then the people who run around after him, like, sort of think, wants, okay, then, then let's do this. this and, is, then, and then it spirals out of control. This has been one of my big preoccupations with Jennifer Lopez about her obsession with white. Right. But I think it does come from JLo. All right. I want to rifle through something really quickly because I have to pee big time. Yeah. These are three comments. They're not questions. Okay. And they're, they're constructive criticisms on the show so okay, far. Okay. 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 Number one, I think you should never mention having a blue tick, even though that we can hear that you're being funny about it in your own voice. Oh, I thought the funny about it in my own voice would, was it was enough to offset it? Was, it but I still think why. I well, take your so point. Do, so I, ta- yeah, I thought the self awareness. It, it was. But no, I'm no, you're fine. You know. I'll I'm let it go. You know. I'll let it Number go. Number two, I think you need to stop referring to me as eye rolling and bemused or any of this stuff that because that, that, it plays that, into a certain stereotype the of a wife. Suffering wife. No, I know. I know exactly. What you're doing. I I've clocked it as well. I don't like it. I think it makes it sound like. All female, oh, all, yeah. all girlfriends and wives in Judd Apatow films yes, up until yes. a certain point. So, but I haven't found a better way of expressing that thing. So what I want to tell people is the podcast is for you, hopefully, if you're a Beatles nerd like me. But if you kind of like the show, but you want to feel like somebody's there in your corner, it's like, what? why are you so obsessed with this stuff? Then you are there. As as their proxy, I think there's I'm not. This isn't the word, but suspicious or bemused is okay. I think bemused is okay. You okay. used the word bemused at one point. Yeah. I, that was workable, but yeah. I think eye rolling. Yes, okay, yeah, it has to go. Criticism taken, agreed with. It'll never happen again. And then when you were talking to Sarah Schmidt, mm. you underscored the first part of the interview with music, and I didn't like it. I will take that into consideration. Take it into consideration. Probably ignore it. Great. Speaking of which. Uh, to finish us out this week, here is the longer version of that chat with Sarah Schmidt from Meet the Beatles for Real. There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. So that must mean you're meant to be here. Now, listening to Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Hello! I have looked at your website for years and years. It's been around since when? 2009, something like that? 2009, yes. And and you are a second generation fan in real life. Do you want to tell us about the, the point at which the Beatles got inside your head and then started spreading? Well, um, I am 44, so I am second generation fan. My mom was a first generation Beatles fan and she loves Ringo. So if Ringo's listening, come meet my mom again. I'm going <laughs> to meet him once. So yeah, come talk to my mom again. But in the 80s, I was a really big fan of the New Kids on the Block in the late 80s, 88, 89. That, that was my band. You know, I was a little teeny bopper. And I went over to my friend's house, who also liked them. And we were having a sleepover. And we were watching their videos. And we're screaming at the television and the whole bit. And her mom started laughing and said, you girls remind me of me and my friends when the Beatles were around. Now, I had heard about the Beatles. and I, I knew their music. But... We had just seen in school, school, um, it was the end of the school year, and the teacher was lazy in music, and he was showing Hard Day's Night and Help. And I was really kind of like, well, these guys are kind of interesting. So when I heard her say that, I was like, really? Well, what was that all about? And I ended up 
thing all night talking to her mom, looking through her mom's old scrapbooks and all this stuff that she had because she saw the Beatles in concert. And I sat at her kitchen table with and my friend went to sleep and here I'm still up all night talking to her mom about the Beatles and learning about the Beatles. <laughs> and what was it you think at that point? You've, you've got a friend, she's heard her mom tell these stories a thousand times. <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever thought about what it was about them that connected with you? I don't know. I've never really thought about it. I, I could connect because I was the same age that at that time that she was. And I understood her passion and and all of that. And it just it just sounded so much fun. It sounded like so much more fun than what I was having with my teeny bopper group. I mean, hanging tough is a is a record. I mean, we, no, we can I, all agree on that. I'll never down the new kids on the block. I still have gone to their <laughs> concerts, but they're not the Beatles at all. So how, how did it spiral from there then? Well, then it just seemed like boom, boom, boom. I I went out and bought the Sgt. Pepper Lonely Harks Club Band on cassette because I knew the song with a little help from my friends from the Wonder Years TV show. But it wasn't the same one. No, it's the Joe, Joe Cocker. It was the Joe Cocker one they used on that. Right, it, it was yeah. Joe Cocker. But I didn't know that at the time. I didn't. I really, I knew nothing. I mean, I. You'd think, you know, there's all this information about the Beatles out in 1988 and 89. I would know, figure out some things. I didn't know what it was anything. So I listened to that. I really liked that. So then I bought like the red and the blue cassettes, and. I had that and I got my mom's records and her friend's records. And I made copies of those onto cassettes and it just spiraled out of control ever since. <laughs> I've been hooked ever since. But what, what's interesting is the music is one thing. And I have said many times, I believe it to be the finest body of work, certainly in 20th century culture and, and, and perhaps in uh, culture that I'm aware of. But the the story, the personalities, the chain of events. What, when did that start becoming interesting to you, and what was your way into that? Well, I bought a book in 1989 called Beatles Songs. I think it was, and it broke down who wrote each part of each Beatles song. And so I'm looking through that, and I started making a list of well, which of these songs do I like, and John's songs kept coming up that those are the ones I like. So then I went like, well, I want to know more about this guy. And so again, forgive me. I didn't know anything. I go to the bookstore and the lives of John Lennon by Albert Goldman is on the clearance section. So I'm like, Hey, I'll buy this book. It's cheap. I didn't know what, but interesting enough, I haven't reread it. I only read it that one time, but I just found his life to be so fascinating. And I, and I felt like he was just this broken person and how everything happened, he had such a traumatic childhood, and then how everything just fell into place with the Beatles, and then with Yoko, it, it just, I wanted to know more and more and more about him, and his life, and his solo music, and so that was really what got me into and it's John and then it's interesting the that there's the some shame around that book because of course now uh it's it's been disowned by Beatles fans and it, it's a pretty salacious okay. and poorly researched and, and I, honestly I don't really remember what all was in I remember reading how tragic his childhood yeah. was in there but as someone who had never read anything at all about the life of John Lennon I, I had seen the Imagine film and that's when I learned that he was murdered 
which was like I had just learned that day. Wow. Let me tell you something. This is a, going off at a slight tangent. A friend of mine is a TV director and once went to make a documentary somewhere in America, I forget where, about some uh, a convent of nuns who are cut off from the outside world. So as part of this documentary, he's talking to this uh, older lady about what her life was like before she entered the convent. And it turned out, you know, she, she'd entered in the mid-60s or something and had been mm. cut off from the outside world ever since. And she talked about being a Beatles fan and seeing them on Ed Sullivan and how much she had that re- strong, visceral reaction that a lot of teenage girls do and that John was yeah. her favourite and she just adored him. And my friend in, you know, 2015 or whatever it was, had to break it to her that John Lennon had been murdered at the age of 40. Oh, how heartbreaking for Just her. so oh strange goodness. to have lived yeah. all those decades cut off from the world and, and such a major piece of cultural history to have not to have completely missed you by, which for you is different because you were younger, so you wouldn't have had right. any memory of it. I knew he had passed away. Mm. I knew he was no longer living. I guess I had assumed that it was a drug overdose or something along those lines. And it was in the seventies, like Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin. Like I just kind of lumped all those sixties people that tragically passed away all into like, well, they had an accidental overdose. There's something like that happened. I had no idea how he, how he lost his life. And then when I watched it on that film, it was like, Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's it's um it's a heartbreaking sequence for the obvious reasons, but I'm just very moved and I've not watched that film for a long time, but the the reaction, the way the world reacts, it, the way the fans react, well it's really it's it's really well done. And just on the on the book thing, I just wanted to say that we we now like there's this grubbiness involving those books, but at the time there wasn't the you know, a library full of Beatles books that there is now there were a fairly limited number many of which were kind of tawdry or cash-ins by people who'd been in their orbit so because it seems like i had gone to the library and there wasn't any there were books about the beatles but there wasn't anything about john lennon and i was wanting to learn about john lennon yeah so then i go to the bookstore and on the clearance rack that there was this book so logically, I yeah. would buy it. I just don't think you should beat yourself up over it. This is I'm, I'm trying to give you some kind of uh, absolve well, you of any residual story, guilt. Like, oh, that's terrible. I'm like, well, it really wasn't yeah, terrible because, for me. Yeah. Kind of. These Everybody views these things through today's prism where all this very high quality, very well researched, very uh, well written right. uh, information about the Beatles is available to us, which, which it just wasn't back then it was pre-anthology it was pre-mark lewis and so you know right. don't don't give yourself a hard time over yeah. it um so so talk to me about your decision to set up the website in fact let's just uh rewind slightly for, for people who haven't seen it yet if people haven't yet visited the website what is it okay well it's called meet the beatles for real and it is a fan club it's meant for fans all around the world to come and share their stories about meeting one one or more of the Beatles or seeing them even just watching them cross the street any kind of interaction you had with one or more of the Beatles it has lots of photos lots and lots of photos sometimes I get off the my main topic of fans because I just love the photos so much but now I try to find things that people normally don't don't have out there things are a little different um, I pattern it after the 
fan newsletters of the 1970s, the right thing, and with a little help from my friends. So if anybody out there ever subscribed to either of those, I mean, I went through those and page by page said, well, what did they have? Okay, they ran contests, I'll run a contest. They did reviews of books, I'll review books, you know. And since I've started this site, I have met the girls that ran those pages, which to me, they're like, I was like, oh my gosh, it's them. Like, they're like celebrities to me because they put all this stuff together back before the internet and they had to make photocopies of everything and mail them and staple them. I can't imagine. That's so interesting because I feel that the stories of the people doing that here in the UK, you know, are not you know, not not that they're uh, extensively told. But there's the documentary about Frida Kelly, who was one of the <laughs> fan club secretaries here, and you know, people working for Brian Epstein. Uh, uh, they're certainly present in the story, but uh, the people over in the United States, not not so much. Well, that's why I've just written a new book about about them, the um, about the fan clubs in North America, I mean, US and Canada, because their stories have never been told and I thought they should be. And when is when is the book uh, due? Um, um, this summer. Right now, it's being worked on the layout of all the pictures. So it's going to have a lot of pictures and memorabilia. That's that's great. That's where it is right now. So it's get coming together. Fantastic. On the pictures that you have on the site, uh, I'm, I'm sitting looking at shelf after shelf of Beatles books, and I always feel that it's rare for me to see a photo I haven't seen. Then I go onto your website, and it's just full of them. So how are you sourcing these? Are people sending them to you? Are you scouring the internet? Um, because I think the big difference yeah. is they're largely not paparazzi photos. They're largely not uh, from official photo shoots. They're from people's personal little rinky-dink cameras. Right. And that was, I think that tells a whole different side of the Beatles story when you see it from a fans, literally from their point of view, it's from their camera, than the posed picture. So... How do I get my pictures? It it's complicated. <laughs> I I go everywhere and anywhere to find the pictures. I buy lots of pictures on eBay and I physically scan them. I have people that look for them that will email them to me. I have this one guy, he's always looking for pictures. He likes John Lennon, so he only looks for John. I have another guy that only likes Paul McCartney, so he's looking for Paul, but if he finds something rare, he sends it over to me. I have that. I scan like auction old auction house pamphlets that they'll be sold some rare photos and stuff i'll scan those i just i'll scour the internet i'll go deep into old pages from who knows when and and then people send them to me what can we learn from these photos about the relationship between the beatles and their fans well one of probably the biggest thing i discovered is that George was probably the most welcoming and kindest to the fans of the four Beatles. And I wouldn't have thought before I started this, that it would have been George. Because it's almost the opposite. It's the opposite of what you think, because George had a sign on the gates of his house saying, go away. He's the one, you know, who famously says the world gave their screams, but the Beatles gave their nervous systems. So you think that he's, he's got, he's going to have no time for the fans. You would think so, Mm. but from everything from the site, from all the stories, George didn't like the big fan 
the arenas, the screaming, the, the running after them, all the fans. But he really liked talking to them one-on-one or a group of two or three of them. So if one, two, or three girls came to the door, knocked on the door, he might welcome them in and give them a beverage, sit down at the kitchen table and, and talk to them about, well, what did you think of this song? What? Please stop writing me so much. I can't read all your letters and it's a waste of paper. That was one conversation he had with a girl. <laughs> Like, please, you write me all the time. I recognize your name. Just stop. <laughs> but he had some really nice conversations with them, and he sincerely wanted to know as a fan what, what their thoughts were. And he did that even when he was in Friar Park in the 70s. I and mean, it was up until John's death is really when he stopped. And even after, though, he would sometimes go out to the gates of Friar Park if fans were standing outside and chat with them a little bit if there was just a couple people. It's remarkable. Now, Ringo's the opposite. Ringo right. liked the big crowd. He did not like... Ringo's never liked signing autographs. I discovered that. Like, no. The whole, They'll I'm be not tossed. I'll be tossed. Love, don't send me any. <laughs> He's never liked signing autographs. He kind of did because it was expected of him. But if you went to his house, he's not giving you his autograph. He, he'll tell you, go away. I don't want you at my house. I don't want to chat with you. Now, if you met him at EMI, he might be more willing to sign something and pose for a picture and have a little conversation with you. But he liked the big crowds. Wow. He liked getting chased and all that crazy stuff. It's amazing when you think of them as the the biggest phenomenon of the 20th century and compare it to modern celebrity, which, of course, you know, think of somebody like Jay-Z or Beyonce who have all this reach. But the idea that you as a fan could go and stand outside their house and it was completely possible that they'd invite you in for breakfast I mean, it's, it just it's yes. it, it, yeah. it's mind-blowing and you know john as you say say george who seems spiky john who could be incredibly acerbic there are these moments of tenderness where people who you know perhaps seem a bit damaged or unwell turn up and he's so kind to them um oh yeah or, or even there's a great story which crops up on your blog about a German fan turning up to his house and, and him giving her one of his Ivan Novello awards for songwriting for right. She's Living Home. Yeah. I know there's another story where somebody turns up at, at John's house and he offers him a ride back to London. Like, we'll just hop in my psychedelic Rolls Royce. and <laughs> we'll get, I mean, it was like, really? Yeah. Because he was asking him, well, where are you going now? He goes, oh, well, I need to catch catch some transfer, get some transportation to head back to London. That's where I'm staying. Oh, I'm heading that way now to the studio. Come, Like, it's just, like, you couldn't imagine any celebrity today that would be like, just hop in my car and I'll drive you into town. It's mind-blowing. What is the most extraordinary story you've had submitted by somebody who wants to tell their story of meeting a Beatle? I, my one of my favorites is Leslie um, Leslie Healy's story, and because I, I got a little time in my life when I was obsessed with her story before I then I met her and it was like oh my gosh you're her. She traveled from the United States to England, pretending to be a student. Like she enrolled to the summer course in England, but then she skipped out on it to meet the Beatles. And she brought her tape recorder, her reel-to-reel, and I don't know how she did it, but she got into the homes of all four Beatles and met all four of them. Like, and she got in 
back of Cavendish in the backyard. Paul doesn't have his shirt on. Jane's serving her lemonade and they're sitting there just chatting away and he, she's recording it all. That story just blows me away. Then she goes to the, the Paul, like, I don't know if Paul was like getting tired of her or what. He's like, oh, you should go around to George's house. Here's his address and here's how you get there. <laughs> so then she's like, okay, great. <laughs> she has all these amazing pictures and so at one time I listened to her tape over and over again. And I transcribed because I would know everything that, that they said to her. <laughs> so that, that was, that one always stands out in my mind because it's just, it's incredible. Like yeah. she met all four Beatles, just like knocked on their door and they all are like, Oh, come on in. Even Ringo, like Ringo doesn't do that. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to ask you to pick a song, which we'll play in a minute. Did you want to tell me what song you've chosen and why? Yeah, I wanted to hear Instant Karma. And the only reason why is because I've been wanting to hear it lately. I really like that it's, song. It's one of my favourite songs. good a reason as any. It's, I haven't heard Instant Karma in quite a while, and it's one I really, really like. I'm going to play the remastered then, one as well from the Give Me Some Truth um, oh, compilation yeah, last year. Oh, great. Yeah, I got year. that for Christmas this year. Yeah, Give they've, truth, they've so. given it a nice polish. Before I play it, I'm going to ask you some quick Beatle questions. Would you have signed them on the strength of the Decker audition? No. Beso me mucho. No. Penny Lane or Strawberry Fields Forever? Strawberry Fields Forever. Would would you rather have Alan Klein or Brian Epstein negotiate your salary? I'll, I'll go with Brian. Uh, if you got to be with the Beatles either on the bus for the Magical Mystery Tour or at the ashram in India, where would you have rather been? Magical Mystery Tour. What is Ringo's finest vocal performance on a Beatles record? The end of With a Little Help from My Friends when he has that high note. Who had the nicest handwriting of all the Beatles? George. Which Beatle looked best with a moustache? Uh, during Sergeant Pepper time... It would be Paul, but Paul doesn't look good with the mustache any other time. You're talking about a lot of the photos that have been on Earth from the 70s. Yes. The ones that I mark on my site, Paul should never have a mustache unless he's on the cover of Pepper. <laughs> if you could put one extra person from the Beatles' friends and family onto the cover of Sergeant Pepper, who would it be? Al Evans. Which Beatle do you think would smell the nicest? George. And if you could own one object from Beatle history... What would you have? My goodness. Probably I just would like their autographs on a fan club item. There we go. I'm going to play Instant Karma in a second. Before I do, and in the time it takes for you to be drowned out by the A Day in the Life Orchestra, what is it about this band? Why so special? They are just four unique guys, make great music, and you know, they have a great message of peace and love. They bring people together like no other band can, and people make friendships because of them, and you know, it's it's a lot more than just their music, but their music's like the core thing. This is Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Well, that was superb. <laughs> <laughs>